The following is a hoop ball presentation. Yo, 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 hey, hi, hello, and welcome to another edition of NBA Today. I'm your host, Corbin Ford. You can follow me at CorbinNBA on Twitter. And we are a Hoopball presentation, so definitely make sure to check out the good folks at Hoopball. Um, you can go online, hoop-ball.com, on Twitter, at HoopballTweets for that great content. Uh, just basketball in general, uh, fantasy-focused, but with everything on hold due to the, you know, corona Um, virus going on right now, the social quarantine that we are having, you know, maybe the fantasy side is more tips and tricks on getting better. There's still plenty of great stuff to check out there. Um, Speaking of that, you know, I don't really even know what day we are in this uh, quarantine season or um, how many weeks has been since basketball has been in the picture. It feels like months, honestly. Uh, It almost feels like the offseason, but without a clear date on when the offseason is over. So even though we're in the last couple of days in March, it does feel like we are in the dog days of September. So uh, definitely interesting getting through that, especially the hoop fan where, you know, it's weird to find out where your fix is coming from uh, basketball wise, whether that's NBA 2K uh, ranking our top 20, 40, 50 NBA players of all time, getting into pointless debates about who was better at what particular time against the other with, you know, just numbers and I saw it live and whatever the case may be to back that up um, NBA 2K is still very much a thing if you're into uh, the newer editions of that uh, I love the older ones myself uh, there's basketball simulations I've been doing all of the above everything I just mentioned as well as uh, just really digging deep into old tape of older NBA games and studying how the game has changed players teams dynasties and such and honestly that leads me to where I am today you know, in 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 terms of uh, content for the good people here who are listening, allow me to weave a tale on the decline of a dynasty, on the rise of an upstart contender that paid his dues yet was still held in contempt, on the birth of a new team raised in the Sunbelt State, and of many other squads and players with hopes and dreams in the last year of an iconic decade. Yes, friends, I am talking about the 1989 NBA season. And over the next couple shows, we're going to go in deep on the replay machine. In fact, you can add that to the list of segments that is currently growing on NBA Today, which is still very much in its infancy. So uh, thank you for supporting. Please rate, review, subscribe, all of that good stuff. But the new segment is the Corbin uh, replay machine. Looking back on old footage, let's cut the tape. Let's see where it's at. Watching old games, putting in those hours so that I can basically have these conversations here with you all. Um, and so we're going to dig deep into the 1989 season. Uh, figured we'd start breaking down every team. Because why not? This was the historical significance to this for me is this is the first um, retro NBA season that I like definitely looked at in depth. Read books, watched videos, um, full games, highlights, all of that to really get a full holistic view of this season as a whole. And I'm happy to share that. Um, the structure roughly here is to break down each team uh we'll start with you know the the teams that weren't super super hot um you know the dregs of the league at the time 
um, young teams that had just started out. We did have an expansion team. I did uh, allude to that in my intro, so that'll be something to kind of break down. The next show will go into the contenders, teams that are, you know, definitely making that run up for that uh, number one spot, you know, and where they stand in 1989. Uh, maybe some historical significance for older teams, legacy teams that you can imagine at the time, uh, Lakers, Celtics, 76ers, those types of teams who had, you know, been the class of the 80s in the NBA, but, you know, were at various stages of decline, to be quite frank. So that'll be interesting to get into. And then over the next couple of shows, we'll break down the playoff series and then the final. So this is something I'm really looking forward to dig deep into, uh, give a little more fully fleshed out kind of overview with some players and some teams um, and I'm just excited to get down to it. So I'm going to take a quick break. Just do a little uh, promotion here on something that you should be paying attention to. And then we're going to get right back to it. Hey, y'all. So you already know um, with all the coronavirus uh, stay in place um, measures that are going on right now, that major sports like basketball, baseball, football, these uh, sporting events aren't exactly happening right now. Understood. We all get that. So it may come as a surprise when I try to recommend my bookie to you, but fear not because there are other events uh, as we get closer and closer into the summer. Surely, you know, hopefully things will get better. There'll be smaller events that are definitely slated to come. You have Nathan's hot dog eating contest, always a big thing. Uh, you have casinos, which are still um, very much even virtual events. You have esports, big thing. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be adjustments to that. And all of those things can be betted on. All of those things can be made wagers for. That activity can still exist for that event. And that's great. You know why it's great? Because Hoopball has a partnership with my bookie that can definitely make sure that all of your needs are met in that regard. MyBookie.ag is what you're looking for to be specific. And since they are a proud partner of all Hoopball podcasts, you can use promo code TODAY when signing up to get a 50% deposit match. That's NBA Today. It's the name of the show. Uh, you know, however you found it, stumbled into it, whatever the case may be, NBA Today is the title, and the promo code is TODAY. As in today when you're listening to this, I can't really figure out any other way to say a TODAY. So definitely make sure you use that promo code to get that 50% deposit match for mybookie.ag. Again, when you wager, wager with mybookie.ag. Use the promo code today, mybookie.ag. Bet, win, get paid. Okay, so the first team that we really have to talk about are the Miami Heat. This was their first year, a 1990 expansion team. They'd be followed uh, by two other teams in 1990, uh, the Orlando Magic and the Minnesota Timberwolves. But this was the Heat's first foray into the NBA realm as uh, the new uh, major league team representing Florida. And they did not have the best of years. They finished 15-67. and 67, Good for very last um, in NBA standings. And, you know, they were actually skewed more younger. You know, usually expansion teams, um, depending on how you build them, um, you know, you get maybe some veterans who are castaways who could fill it up or whatever the case may be, or do you want to surround your team with youth and talent? And the Miami Heat chose the latter. Um, I would say more so on youth than on talent, but they did have some interesting names. Uh, the only person, well, there was one of two people who were 30 or over. Uh, you had veteran... Uh, guard Rory Sparrow, a uh, former Nick. Uh, at 30, he played 80 games for them. You also had Pat Cummings, um, a veteran big man who definitely got around um, in the NBA uh, well, in just 11 years, uh, several different teams, and so you have that as well. Um, 
Sparrow averaged 12 points a game. I think your leading scorer for the Heat was Kevin Edwards, who was a 23-year-old rookie uh, at the time. Uh, went was born in Ohio, um, came up out of there, made his NBA de- debut then, and he averaged the most points. He was picked with the 20th pick in that NBA draft, uh, went to college at DuPaul. And, you know, did not have the best of numbers. But again, this is a rookie leading a, a team of castaways who are just getting used to the game. I mean, in terms of playing together, you average 13 points, three rebounds, four assists. The shooting percentage is not super great. 42% from the field, 27% from three. But he wasn't even taking a lot of threes anyway. So you did have that. Um, and he was your leader there. Rory Sparrow chipped in with 12. Grant Long, a power forward who would, um, before his tenure ended with the Miami Heat, he would be the longest uh, tenured member of the Heat um, before he was uh, he before he departed to Atlanta in '95. So this was his rookie year as well, and he averaged 11 points a game uh, to go along with six rebounds and just under two assists. He was a steady player who played all 82 games for the Heat. Aside from that, you had an ex-Laker in Billy Thompson. Uh, Double figures of 10 points a game, not too much, 7 rebounds, 2 assists. You had John Sunvold, an ex-Supersonic, ex-San Antonio Spur, who didn't really do too much, but he was a 3-point bomber. That was kind of his thing. Uh, He would retire as a 39% 3-point shooter. Uh, Actually, for the Miami Heat, he led the NBA in 3-point percentage at 52%, uh, just taking under 2 a game. Uh, So, not a high volume, but he, too, was a double-figure scorer for the Heat. Uh, offensively, you know, this team was not great. <laughs> I think that's putting it lightly. Um, they were dead last in offensive rating, <laughs> 97.8. They were also dead last in points per game. Uh, coincidentally, I think not. Uh, defensively, they weren't horrible. I mean, they weren't great, but they were 18th out of the 25 in defensive rating. Uh, 16th in pace, you know, they, they cla- your classic, uh, you know, expansion team. Uh, how could I forget Ronnie Cycli, who's also uh, a, a touted rookie for this team? He was uh, picked by the Heat with the ninth overall pick. He would go on to play five years of Miami and then Golden State, Orlando, and ultimately New Jersey. Um, and he would definitely have a breakout year the very next season. But just starting out, ten points, seven rebounds, forty-four percent from the field. Uh, again. Just like all these Heat players, really uh, just getting the hang of it and uh, growing their flame or fanning their flame. I don't know. I think I screwed that one up. <laughs> but yeah, they, 15-67, dead last in the NBA in 1989. But as we all know, good things were on the horizon. Next team we got to talk about is the Charlotte Hornets. Yes, they were the second expansion team in 1989, the Sun Belt State uh, or Sunbelt community expansion team. Um, and you know what? They had a lot of background, or not a lot of background, a lot of excitement behind this team. Uh, you know, uh, they had sick uniforms. I loved the early 90s. I loved everything about the early 90s Charlotte Hornets, between their uniforms, their arena, the fans, the craziness. I mean, the basketball wasn't exactly great for those early years. I would say after 91, uh, you know, Larry Johnson and the later Alonzo Mourning, things really went to a whole nother level in terms of enjoyability watching them. But the excitement at the Charlotte Coliseum, where they were number one in attendance for 1989, was great. Um, the Hornets finished 20-62, and 62, uh, second worst record 
uh, just ahead of the Heat. Other coach was Dick Harder. Um, offensively, pace-wise, this team was going up and down. Uh, they were 11th in pace. Uh, defensively, they weren't great. Uh, points per game, not too good as well. Offensive rating, not horrible. Uh, definitely in the latter third of the league in that uh, at 21 out of 25 teams. But they were a up-and-down team that was gunning, running and gunning. Uh, you had Muggsy Bogues. Uh, it was his. Uh, he already played a year before uh, with the Washington Bullets uh, out of Wake Forest. You had rookie Rex Chapman. Uh, you may know him now on Twitter, <laughs> sharing funny videos and just inspirational stuff to make you laugh. But back in the day, he was your run-and-gun shooting guard who had no conscience on getting any type of shot up. He was the eighth overall pick uh, for the Hornets that season, just ahead of Ronnie Cycli. You had legend, uh, legendary three-point shooter Del Curry, obviously the father of Steph Curry and, and Seth as well. Um, this was his second year and he, his first with the Hornets. He would play a while with them. But this team also had more veterans. Uh, you had ex-Laker Kurt Rambis. Uh, you had, uh, a, 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 I want to say, a prototype, one of the earlier point forwards in Robert Reed. Um, you had Kelly Chapuka, uh from the... Detroit Pistons, who could definitely fill it up. Uh, Greg Kite, ex-Celtic. Uh, again, no more probably for the legendary Celtics-Lakers uh, battles, but a backup big as well. Um, Ricky Green, former Jazz guard, who was lightning fast, even though at this point he was more in the twilight of his career at age 34. And this team, you know, they definitely scored. Uh, didn't have as many double-figure scores as the Heat did, but Kelly Chapuka led the way with 22 points a game, uh, 46% from the field, 35% from three. Uh, Rex Chapman, like I said, was the gunner. Uh, in his rookie year, 16 points a game with two rebounds and two assists, shooting 41% from the field, 31% from three, uh, taking the most threes per game on the team, uh, basically two and a half, just under three. Robert Reed had 14, kind of had a renaissance uh, in Charlotte. He was kind of fading fast in Houston after having a long tenure there, um, getting the Rockets to a couple of NBA finals with the help of uh, notable bigs such as Moses Malone and then later uh, Hakeem Olajuwon uh, as well. But, you know, at this point, this this move to Charlotte after, you know, being available in the expansion draft really helped him. And he would go on to play, you know, just another couple of seasons. But definitely markedly better play. Uh, you had Earl the Twirl, Earl Curden, a former big man, won a championship with the 76ers in 1983. He was okay. Uh, pretty productive as a backup big. 6.6 rebounds a night. Muggsy Bogues, again, we talked about him. 5.7 assists. Uh, and he didn't start a lot. He played 79 games, only started 21. Uh, he would obviously really come into his own uh, on future iterations of the Charlotte team. Del Curry as well. Uh, you know, didn't play too, I mean, 48 games off the bench, uh, shot 34, um, 34% from three, uh, but he's really just taking over one a game, and he would be another player who would, um, become more prominent on future, uh, Charlotte Hornets rosters, but this team as a whole, nothing too crazy, Muggsy Books finished 11th in assists with 620, uh, that was notable, uh, Rex Chapman, I already said he got those shots up, he was 20th in field goal attempts, and he was 19th in three-point attempts, getting up 191, which was a lot uh, for the late 80s, uh, just in general. In fact, quick aside, just talking about three-point field goal attempts for that year, uh, Michael Adams, uh, 
with his unorthodox like one-handed jumper for the run-and-gun Denver Nuggets of that year. We'll get to them later. Led the league in three-point attempts of 466 and makes with 166. So he was really a chucker for all of that. Um, and then Dale Ellis right behind him, Danny Ainge, Trent Tucker, uh, Hound Dog Harold Presley. <laughs> With 295, Sleepy Floyd, Johnny Newman, Derek Harper, Mike McGee, and the noted three-point bomber Reggie Miller at 10th at the time. He made 98 threes, attempted 244 for 40%. So that was your top three for three-pointers attempted uh, for the NBA in the late 80s. Nowadays, you'll see people attempt that in like (laughs) three months' time, it feels like, uh, much less the whole season, you know. But just goes to show you just how crazy the game is has evolved in that time also who thought the time of the charlotte hornets would lead to uh break down the top 10 in the nba three-point shooting attempts for the year 1989 that's what you get in the corbin replay machine yes (laughs) all right we're gonna have to go down to our next team (laughs) so our next team up is the san antonio spurs now quick random note just to show how funny the nba was the year before in 1987-1988 the san antonio spurs somehow managed to win 31 games, they went 31-51 and 51 <laughs> under coach Bob Weiss and ended up making the playoffs. They were quickly swept by the LA Lakers, but imagine making the playoffs with 31 wins. You lose 50 games and you get a playoff berth. <laughs> Hilarious, right? Alright, so the very next season of this 1989 season under a new coach, uh, legend Larry Brown, the Spurs go 21-61, and 61, so they lose 10 more games. And no, there was no playoffs for them this year. Uh, this team was definitely one of the upper echelon in the running gun system. Uh, sixth in pace. Uh, didn't have a great offensive rating. Pretty solid uh, run-of-the-mill defensively. Uh, 13th in defensive rating. Uh, but, you know, with this team in general, eh, not too great. Uh, you did have players who would become productive players. Uh, Alvin Robertson, uh, Johnny Dawkins before injuries um, inj- I mean, messed up his career. Uh, you had Vernon Maxwell. <laughs> yep, he was on this team. Uh, aside from that, you had such luminaries as Dave Greenwood, uh, Jay Vincent, Calvin Nat, vets like that, Mike Shrek. I said that wrong. So my Mike Shrek. Uh, I just remember him being a, a, a one of your 80s stiffs. He was a backup big man for the Lakers. Uh, found his way uh, to the Spurs for the trade for Michael Thompson when the Lakers absolutely fleeced the Spurs uh, a couple seasons back. Willie Anderson... Uh, he would end up playing a couple years in the NBA as a swingman. He was there as well. Your top guy, uh, as far as points per game, actually was Willie, uh, who topped off with 18 points a game with five rebounds and four assists for this Spurs team, and that was his rookie season. Uh, ironically, he would never get close to those numbers again. <laughs> I think uh, the closest he would get back to scoring as much or having anywhere close to that rookie season was his sophomore year. After that, he would kind of table out like a middle-of-the-pack shooter. Uh, he would only have uh, three more seasons where he averaged double figures, and he was out of the out of the NBA by 30. So, you know, he definitely started and put his best foot forward, and unfortunately sustaining that probably was an issue. Um, Alvin Robertson, very good defensive guard. Uh, he was one of the backcourt members for the Spurs that really kind of powered them uh, along. 
Uh, he played 65 games alongside Anderson's 81. He averaged 17 points, five rebounds, just under six actually, and six assists, but a whopping three steals a night. He was a terror defensively in the passing lanes, straight up man defense. Um, he was second in the NBA that year in steal percentage, so that just goes to show you that. Um, Greg Anderson, uh, you know, vet big. Not too much, but he played all 82 games for them. That was good. Uh, he was also 18th in blocks per game, and he had 103 blocks on the season, which was 17th in the league. So that was good. But aside from that, uh, defensive box plus minus, got to go out with Al- Alvin Robertson, who, you know, again, he was a very solid player, and and defensively, he was a monster. But you can't have one great defensive player uh, <laughs> offset a team that did not have a whole lot of that. Uh, you had Frank Burkowski, one of the best names in the NBA. Uh, he played 60 games, 51% from the field, 13.6 rebounds. Uh, Vernon Maxwell, I already mentioned him, uh, started 36 games, played 79, had 11 points. Uh, actually took the most threes on the team, just over a three and a half a game. Uh, shot 24% from there, however. In fact, just shooting-wise, uh, the Spurs were not a very good three-point shooting team, uh, shooting 21% as a team only 63 makes between all of them uh, out of 293 attempted that is gross 47 <laughs> percent from the field in general from two-point range not super great they just weren't a great shooting team uh funny though i'm just gonna run through their assistant coach and staff they had an assistant coach staff of rc buford alvin gentry and greg popovich to go along with ed manning but i mean come on rc buford and greg popovich would later go on to totally remake the Spurs into the dynasty that we um, have known of them for years. Alvin Gentry will become a very renowned coach, still coaching all these years later. And, you know, Ed Manning, let's, let's, uh, the late Ed Manning would, you know, coach with the Spurs, um, and he would work that season and the next, uh, and that was his career. But just look at the other ones and how crazy that was that those guys would later go on to be in their own way, either part of the great Spurs dynasty or just very good um, renowned coaches in their own right. Uh, but as far as the Spurs, that is pretty much all for you. I guess I do have to talk about how their starting backcourt of Willie Anderson and Alvin Robertson. <laughs> and this is funny for me. They combined to shoot 66 threes, like attempt 66 threes, and they made 13 of those. So uh, they were definitely getting their shots in the mid range. Um, and when those shots were going, that was great. Uh, one more little note on Johnny Dawkins, who would end up playing pretty well with Philadelphia um, when he switched teams, and then, of course, unfortunately got injured. Only uh, played 32 games, started 30 of them, 44% from the field uh, in general, and he was looked at at the time as a really um, potential building block for the Spurs, uh, so it's unfortunate to work out, but in that time, 14.7 assists, 3 rebounds a night, uh, definitely was sparking potential on what his career could be. All right, so now we're getting to more of a, just a team that was straight tragic. Uh, not even just their record, just as a team and the dysfunction that surrounded them. We are talking about the 1989 Los Angeles Clippers. <laughs> so the Clippers went 21-61. and 61. 7th uh, in the NBA as far as the Pacific Division is concerned. Um, they were coached by two different coaches. Uh, both did miserable. Uh, Gene Shu, who went 10-28 and 28 before he was canned, and replaced by Don Casey, who did marginally better, um, as in one more win uh, in comparison to five more losses. He went 11 
and 33 to finish the season. Uh, their GM, one of the better NBA players in NBA history, one of the worst GMs in NBA history, was Elgin Baylor. Uh, definitely got some points up. Still in the latter third of the league in that. Uh, they were 18th up. Uh, and they were fourth in pace, so they're definitely getting up and down. And the funny thing is, looking at this roster, they had a good young team with players who would end up being marginally productive uh, to very productive in different stops in their NBA career. So I'm going to start with the positive players first, and then I'll run through some more. Um, As far as youth, uh, several of their guys who led in minutes and games uh, were 24 under. So you had Ken Norman, who was a productive small forward, uh, really got his points on putbacks, could run the floor very well, wasn't a great shooter, but filled the lane um, p- pretty well um, for his time. He was 24. You had Danny Manning, who injuries would curtail his career a little bit, but he would become a, a NBA All-Star soon. And at the time, this was him just starting his career. He was 22. Uh, talking about injuries, he only played 26 games, started 18, averaged 16 points, six rebounds, three assists, just starting to flash that potential. You had Charles Smith, we may know him more for uh, getting blocked all those times in the 93 uh, series against the Chicago Bulls uh, as a member of the Knicks. But back when he started for the Clippers, he was looked at as someone who could potentially be a young star for this Clippers team. He was 23 years old, shot just under 50% from the field, averaged 16 points, 6 rebounds, 1 assist, had a good mid-range game, uh, a 6-9 frame, so definitely could score with some size and and. They were looking at him as like that next young forward. Uh, Gary Grant would end up having a productive career as a, a steady point guard at the time. Uh, played 71 games, started 48, 11 points, 3 rebounds, 7 assists. They called him the general. He was 23 at the time, same age as uh, Charles Smith. And then, you know, we got to talk about Benoit Benjamin, okay? Benoit Benjamin, uh, who... Benoit Benjamin was a very interesting case. Uh, nicknamed Big Ben, seven footer, uh, 250 pounds. He would go from team to team as he flashed this potential that teams kept getting suckered into believing he would sustain over a long period of time. Unfortunately, he could never do it. He would show up out of shape several times. He had this big fiasco with the Clippers where he had a disappointing season. He was going to leave and go to Italy and got a contract there and then had a bitter uh, contract resolution to have to go back to the Clippers. Uh, He was drafted, promisingly enough, (laughs) uh, with the third overall pick in the 1985 draft. And just to go talk about the 85 draft, you had players who were gone first, of course, like Patrick Ewing and Wayman Tisdale, but you also had the X-Man, Xavier McDaniel, Detlef Schrempf, Chris Mullen, uh, Charles uh, Oakley, uh, pick 13th, Carl Malone, pick 18th, Joe Dumars, uh, AC Green, Terry Porter. Uh, you had these guys all in the first round. The Clippers swung on Benoit Benjamin, who, let me not paint all of his career with the bad brush. He did play 15 years in the league. They say you can't teach size and whatnot. He did play 15 years. Uh, averages of 11 points and 7 rebounds a game. Uh, just under 2 assists. Uh, <laughs> it's just... Uh, he was 20th in win shares. He had games, moments where he looked very dominant. And then he just had somewhere you could clearly see him loafing, not caring. And that was not just the reputation. That was that was there. Uh, and he would play for the Clippers uh, for several tumultuous years, five of them. Then he would go to Seattle. They would play with him. They'd go, okay, we need to get rid of him. they go to the Lakers. Lakers did the same thing. 
due to had him for a year, nursing injuries that weren't of the significance that he said that they were. Then the Lakers are able to get him off to another coach who still believed in this talent, the New Jersey Nets, uh, with the coach at the time, Willis Reed. Went from then to Vancouver, Milwaukee, Toronto, Philly. Finally, Cleveland. Tried out for the Lakers again in 2000 uh, as a backup big, but got cut in training camp, <laughs> which uh, that was the year they won the championship. That would have been so uh, weird to have a homecoming there and finally find your way after bouncing around the league with the ring. But it was not to be for Big Ben. 807 games, though, nothing to sneeze at. Uh, for, like I said, 49% from the field, uh, 14.8 PER, so really just an average player in general. Uh, but at the time, the Clippers weren't really aware of that, uh, and they still believed that there was some hope out there uh, for Benjamin in his third season. He averaged 16 points, 8 rebounds, 2 assists in 79 games for them. And then you had some vets on this team as well. Uh, Quentin Daly, ex-Chicago Bull, uh, ex-Laker. He averaged 16 points, 3 rebounds, 2 assists. He was a troubled player, you know, battled personal demons, but he could definitely fill it up. You had Norm Nixon, another ex-Laker from their glory days, uh, really fading fast at the tail end of his career. This would be his last season in the NBA. He played 53 games. Uh, six points a game with six assists as well. Even then, at that point, was still kind of a veteran force for this team, but you could tell that he was kind of tired of, you know, having his words fall on deaf ears, and he expressed this pledge several times. We do have to remember he was traded, uh, what, six years earlier to the Clippers in that Byron Scott trade, uh, which was just another poor, poor trade in a history of them for the Los Angeles Clippers, which I would love to talk about. In fact, there might be a future pod breaking it down, but reading recommendation during this quarantine time, check out The Curse by Mick Minus. Uh, it breaks down everything about the Los Angeles Clippers from their introduction up into uh, the middle of the Lob City days. And it goes in-depth on all of the bonehead decisions the Clippers made during that time, including making trades, uh, finding out information about the players that they didn't do research about before, and then going to court to sue teams about re-doing um, the trade they made a year ago that was just a bum trade to begin with. I mean, I can go on and on about the Clippers, but just for this season, a young team uh, with players that have potential didn't pan out. All these players would be out within the next four years for the Clippers. Uh, that promising young five we talked about. Uh, some of them would form a nucleus of a first or a second round exit uh, later on, unfortunately. But that was it for the Clippers. Um, true shooting percentage, ben, ben, Benoit Benjamin was 14th. Uh, he was also 11th in defensive rebounding and 5th in blocks, 18th in total rebounds. So he had some there. Uh, Gary Grant, great with steals, 15th in the league at 2 a game, uh, 144 total. Ken Normal is 20th in offensive rebounds. These are my notables. Uh, Quentin Daly somehow was 13th in usage uh, with 27.7, which was insane. And really... That's it about these Clippers, a sad season, and I wish I could say the light would get brighter for this team, but as we all know, it would not. We are chugging along here. Okay, next team is the New Jersey Nets. They finished, uh, quite sad, uh, middle of the pack, obviously not the worst team, but they finished 26-56, and 5th in the NBA Atlantic Division. Uh, their coach was Willis Reed, yes, the captain one who stepped up big in Game 7 of the 1970 NBA Finals, hit those two big jump shots over Wilt Chamberlain to inspire and galvanize the Knicks team to victory. There's only been like 14 documentaries and 7,000 books written on the subject, so definitely check that out. But as a coach, eh, I mean, he did win 82 games. Yeah, he won 82 games. Um, 
not in one season. He did not go 82-0. He won that stretch out over five seasons. Uh, he was not a very good coach, unfortunately, or just had the misfortune of coaching some horrible rosters. Uh, no exception here. The Nets were pretty much terrible. You name whatever category you want, they were in the bottom third. Uh, I think their best uh, or shiniest-looking statistic was their 19th in defensive rating, uh, 22nd offensively, 23rd in points a game. Uh, you know, defensively, they had some promise, I guess. <laughs> um, pace, middle of the pack, not too much there to get excited about. Going down the list of players, you did have at this point uh, a legend for the Nets at the time, the one shining light through some very pitiful seasons, Buck Williams, whose uh, nickname is Ajax, because Giddy cleans the glass. Um, he had a solid season for the Nets there. This was his last season uh, with the New Jersey Nets, last full season out of eight before he was traded to a contending team in the Portland Trail Blazers, where he would make a couple of finals appearances with them uh, for the season. Uh, played 74 games. Averaged 13 points, 9 rebounds, and just over an assist a game. He was 13th in rebounds per game, 13th in field goal percentage, 18th in two-point uh, field goal percentage, uh, and he was a force on the glass. Uh, 18th in effective field goal percentage, 19th in offensive rebounds. He was a great rebounder, had decent mid-range jump shot. He was the one consistent piece for New Jersey Nets, that team that lacked consistency. Uh their leading score for the season actually <clears throat> was just one of your classic underachiever forward guys in Roy Henson, 27 at the time. He averaged 16 points, six rebounds, uh, 40% from the field. He flashed the potential at times, but uh, he just never sustained over a long period. In fact, Charles Barkley in his book was very um, critical of Roy Henson and just the way that he had the potential, but never seemed to have the work ethic to match up with that. Uh, you had another player <laughs> just going about the the roster of underachieving players on this New Jersey team. You had Joe Barry Carroll in his prime, a nickname Joe Barry Barely Cares. <laughs> he was actually involved in a trade that got the Celtics Kevin McHale <clears throat> and Robert Parrish. He averaged 14 points a game, 7 rebounds, assists and a half, 44% from the field. Uh, he was kind of winding down his career. Another guy who had potential but didn't sustain over a long period of time. Speaking of another person like that, Chris Morris, a small forward who at the time was 23, um, had shown him some promise. Uh, in still his career was in his infancy. 45% from the field, 36% from three, 14 points, five rebounds, one assist. He could kind of handle the ball a little bit. He wasn't a horrible passer. His job was definitely to score. He could shoot from the inside. He could score from outside. He kind of had a versatile offensive game uh, for a small forward at his time, but just didn't put it all together. Uh, I almost think of him as like a, a 80s uh, Tim Thomas. Uh, he would play 10 years in the NBA though, so he definitely made a career out of it, but nowhere near the promise that he flashed in this one season. In fact, um, his only better season scoring uh, aside from this would be his very next season with the Nets as well. Uh, he eventually just topped out his 11 points a game score, inefficient, head wasn't always there um, in terms of just consistently staying focused and not kind of being a troublemaker. Um, then you had Mike McGee. McGee for three. <laughs> Early uh, three-point bomber uh, back in the NBA during that time. Made stops to the Lakers, the Hawks, and other teams. Uh, he started just, uh, what, 49 games for them. Uh, he got up three threes a night. Shot 36% from there. Averaged 13 points, two rebounds, and an assist. You weren't getting that from McGee. You definitely were getting defense. You were getting three-point shooting. Uh, the ability to space the floor for its time. And that is what he provided uh, for them. Aside from that, not too much. You had guys like Lester Connor, 
another decent three-point shooter, uh, Walter Berry, just another average player, John Bagley, who I liken to, um, I call him the Raymond Felton of the <laughs> 80s and 90s, just this portly point guard who was fairly consistent, seven points, five assists tonight, uh, definitely had a jump shot that he believed in more than he should have, uh, for example, he shot 20% from three this season, he was definitely not above giving them up, um, there's a great book, I think it was Bob Ryan and Terry Pluto, uh, called 48 Minutes, and it's basically this one detailed book concerning a matchup between the Celtics and the Cavaliers on one random night in 1987, I highly recommend it, look at me with these book recommendations, anyway, um, if you check it out, like, in the book alone, uh, <laughs> Bagley went one for six from three, and, that you could see, um, like within the writing, they keep saying that the coaches said, "Hey, just take a step in and shoot that twenty footer because you can make that shot." The three just seems to be something you can't do. But Bagley would not be deterred and would continue to fire them up. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> he just never was able to put all of that together for his career. He's a twenty-four percent three-point shooter, um, and not for lack of attempts from three. For his career, uh, he shot 473 of them. Uh, the most he ever made in one season was the year before, uh, 1988, with New Jersey, where he made 47 of 161 for 29%. Uh, we're starting to get to the volume threes and lack of conversions um, close to, let's say, the Isaiah Thomases or the Russell Westbrooks of the time. Guys who, hey, they were going to shoot it. They were going to make it, but they were going to shoot it. <laughs> so uh, that's that. Notables. For them, uh, Lester Connor and Roy Henson played all 82 games. Mike McGee was 10th in the NBA in three-point field goals made with 93. Uh, Chris Morris was 20th in percentage at 36% from three. Uh, Lester Connor got himself some, some steals. He was 10th on that. He was 15th on assists as well. Uh, Lester Connor didn't have a very long career. Actually, no, my mistake. Lester Connor had a fairly long career. Lost my words there. Um... He was called Lester the Molester. I'm sure. I'm fairly positive they would come up with a different name for him now. Um, but he played to 35 um, for the Lakers. And he was definitely a guy who, with uh, career averages of one and a half steals a night, was someone who would get the ball from the other team using a much uh, better word than the nickname that was assigned to him back in the day. All right. Now, we've just been really plugging away at these uh, basement-level teams in 1989, and it's actually been interesting to kind of see where they've all been and for what reasons. Like right now, um, including our next team, I haven't seen any teams that have, um, you know, you'll see teams that have high expectations and they just fall short. Uh, we've already talked about Miami and Charlotte, just two teams that just started out. No one thought they would be good. They didn't do anything to uh, deter those uh, notions. Uh, the San Antonio Spurs and Clippers are just two sad teams. Uh, so are the Nets. And now we get to the Sacramento Kings, uh, who finished sixth in the NBA Pacific Division, 27 and 55. Uh, another former legend who was at the helm, not coaching in this case, but as the, the main uh, GM or executive, the great Bill Russell, who was, uh, let's just say, not very good at that. Um, I mean, he was actually better as a coach. Eight years as a coach. You have to remember some of that was him. Um, as a player coach for the Celtics, he would finish 341 and 290. Um, as a GM, though, uh, he didn't really do too much and really only had a two-year stint, uh, or really just over a year stint, uh, for the Sacramento Kings as the guy there. And there's hilarious stories of him falling asleep at practices and stuff, just watching this Sacramento team, which is hilarious to think about the great Bill Russell going, you know what, man? I'm checking out of this one. <laughs> 
So a quick rundown on the Kings. They were led primarily by their backcourt. You had second-year guard Kenny the Jet Smith. Yes, the TNT guy, as we all know, uh, who was a very quick, speedy point guard with um, some good three-point shooting ability. Uh, almost reminds me, I mean, not really, I think he's a way better three-point shooter, but almost like the De'Aaron Fox of the uh, Kings now. But he had 17 points and seven assists tonight, uh, just under three rebounds and a steal and a half. Was definitely getting his hands on loose basketballs. Shot 46% from the field, 35% from three. He was definitely filling it up. Uh, your leading score, uh, although he did come over in a trade about midway through the season, was Danny Ainge, who at this point had really come into his own in the prime of his career at age 29 as a guy who was going to score. Um, while being a decent distributor of the ball himself, he averaged 20 points a game for the Kings uh, with six assists and one steal, or steal and a half, pretty much at the same rate, if not a little bit more, than Kenny Smith. Uh, this was in 28 games for the Kings. He shot 45% from the field. He shot 38% from three on five threes a night. That was huge volume back then for the 80s. The guy was a flamethrower of a shooter back then for the Kings. Um, and just in general, that was one of his better years. He definitely got them up, but just in points per game, um, just being someone who was filling it up for them in that way was awesome. And uh, this actually, the points that he scored for the Kings was basically his season high. He would score 17 over a full season with them, uh, just under 18 points a night at age 30 uh, the very next season for the Kings. But he was a primary source of offense to go along with Kenny Smith. You did have Rodney McRae, an uh, interesting forward, uh, another guy who kind of handled the ball a little bit, uh, get teams into their offense a little. Uh, he averaged 12 points, 7 rebounds, and 4 assists a night. A uh, former Rocket played with the Twin Towers um, back when they made their finals appearance and played a couple years in Sacramento as well. Uh, he played 68 games a night, shot 46% from the field. Solid all-around numbers. You had a uh, scoring forward, Wayman Tisdale. Uh, Injury-riddled season for him. He only played 31 games, averaged 19 points, 9 assists, and just over an assist and a half a game. Uh, on 52% shooting from the field, he had great inside moves. He had a nice mid-range jumper out to about 17, 18 feet. And when he got the ball, I mean, he was putting that thing up. Uh, LaSalle Thompson, uh, vet big man, uh, 15 points and 9 rebounds a night. You had Howard Presley, talked about him. He was a three-point gunner as well. Got three threes a night up, uh, made almost two of them for 40% from three for the season for 12 points a game. You had Ed Pinkney, Ed Pinkney uh, who was a versatile, well, not really. He was an interesting big, score inside, give energy as a, a, a springy big off the bench, 12 points. Five rebounds a night. Jim Peterson, another former Rocket big with a, a decent stretch jump shot. Uh, and he averaged double figures as well, 10 points and six rebounds. You had the tragic story of Ricky Barry, um, who was a promising shooting guard for the Kings. Uh, only played this one season with him, his rookie season. Uh, had 11 points a night um, on 45% from the field. Uh, 46% from three. He would tragically take his own life um, just before the start of the next season. But at the time, he was a promising pick for the Kings, having been taken uh, with the 18th overall. And he looked to have great potential as a, as a really good uh, scoring guard uh, who could get hot at times. So you had that. You also had a guard. He only played 14 minutes. Uh, or not 14 minutes. He only played 14 games, 70 minutes for the Kings. But you had Michael Jackson. Yes, 
yeah, he was smooth. The smooth. No, I'm not gonna do it. Not gonna do it. Anyways, um, he was he was there. Uh, you also have Vinny Del Negro. Uh, again, you know, we probably know him better as a coach for the Bulls and the Clippers and whatnot, or playing with the Spurs with David Robinson. But uh, this was his uh, early career in the NBA, and he played 80 games, started two, 19 minutes a night. Uh, didn't really shoot the three ball well. Didn't really have a great shooting career in general. Uh, seven points, two rebounds, two assists. But he would eventually become a very uh, decent uh, shooting guard in the NBA, at least uh, for his career, which spanned from this rookie season I'm talking about now with the Kings up through playing in 2002 with Phoenix at the age of 35. So he definitely made a productive uh, career for himself, averaging nine points, two rebounds, and three assists over that career. All right, notables for the Kings. First, I got to talk about a little bit about their ratings. Uh, pace, they were 10th up and down Offensively, I mean, still back end of the league, 20th in offensive rating, 21st in defensive rating, uh, not really good at, you know, stopping teams from scoring, and they were fairly decent but not great at scoring themselves. Uh, do have to remember that offensive jolt they got from Danny Ainge, they did not get until midway through the year, so that means mostly you're relying on offense from Kenny Smith, Rodney McCray, who wasn't exactly uh, an aggressive scorer himself, Wayman Tisdale, who was but was injured for most of the time, and guys like LaSalle Thompson, Ed Pinkney, who picked up uh, loose rebounds and converted their points that way. You did not have a lot of finishers on this Kings team. Uh, Kenny Smith, with seven assists tonight, uh, was 14th in the league in that. He was also 7th in minutes per game. He played 38 minutes a night. This dude was being run to the ground. He was 5th in minutes with 3,145. That's insane. Offensive, uh, box plus minus, Danny Ainge had 2.9. The Kings had two players who were in the top 20 in three-point field goal attempts. They also had two guys who were in the top 20 in three-point field goals made, and that was, of course, Kenny Smith and Danny Ainge. Uh, aside from that, though, this team was kind of rough. Couldn't quite figure it all out together. Uh, but, you know, looking at the pieces, they were interesting. Other uh, coach was Jerry Reynolds at the time. Uh, he would make it through this season, and then he would go through next season through 28 games, after which he would only finish up uh, 7-21, and 21, and then, of course, would move on. All right, so going down to our very next team. Already covered the Kings here. He, we're moving on. We got the Indiana Pacers who finished 28-54, and 6th in the NBA Central Division. They were coached by four different people during this time. Uh, the doctor, late great doctor Jack Ramsey, who was 0-7, Mel Daniels, 0-2, George Irvine, who went 6-14, and and then Dick Versace, who went 22-31, and easily the best of those four coaches. Uh, going through some of the records, uh, 15th in points per game at 106.9, uh, 18th in defensive uh, points per game, 15th in pace, 16th in offensive rating, 23rd in defensive rating, uh, not super great, but again, this was not a very good team, so why are we surprised? We're not. Uh, their top two guys, uh, Chuck Person and Reggie Miller. Chuck Person, uh, who played 80 games, the Rifleman, started 79 of them, got the three ball a lot, well, you know, not nearly as much as, let's say, a Danny Ainge, but he shot just under three a game for 30%. 48% from the field, 21 points, 6 rebounds, 3 assists. Reggie Miller, 
uh, played 74 games. Yep, this was still uh, his first couple of years in the NBA. He averaged 16 points. Uh, he was already shooting the three ball very well, 40% from three on over three three-pointers attempted a night. Uh, 47% from the field, three rebounds, three assists. He would finally, I mean, his basic tagline was 21-3-3 three and three, <laughs> uh, for his career. So you knew Reggie Miller was getting in there to score the basketball. Wayman Tisdale. Yes, he started in Indiana before going to Sacramento, and he averaged 16 points a night to go along with six rebounds and an assist uh, in 27 minutes a night. So the time, very good. 50% from the field, uh, and then we saw what he would do in Sacramento. And just uh, how he'd play out, but he was another guy who could fill it up for them. Uh, going over in that same trade, funny that we're talking about this, LaSalle Thompson, already mentioned him, uh, same basic game and stats, 12 points, 9 rebounds, slightly better for the uh, Pacers in this year. Vern Fleming, steady backup guard, starter at times, who didn't really have a great shot, but was a guy who could get the Pacers into their offense and did it quite well. Uh, 14 points on 50% shooting from the field. Did not have a three ball, didn't really have a consistent jump shot, but he can get to the lane pretty well. Uh, you had a great way of using his size. Uh, Four uh, rebounds a night, six assists to go along with those 14 points. You got Detlef Schrempf, uh, who had just started for a couple years back with Dallas. Only played 32 games with the Pacers this year. 51% from the field. Didn't really get the three ball yet as a consistent weapon. Was only shooting 26% from three. 14 points, seven rebounds, just under three assists a night. You had the Flying Dutchman, Rick Smits. 82 games, 71 games started. 11 points a night, 6 rebounds as well. Didn't shoot 3, but was a very productive big man. And then after that, not too much. You had a former uh, coach, as we probably know him better for, Scott Skiles, backup guard, not really a shooter, but a gamer. Tough guy, tough as nails. You know how they talk about those guys. Um, You know, he, he uh, played 80 games, started 13, 6 rebounds, just under 5 assists a night. And this was really your team. Um, John Long, who I loved John Long for one, because he could actually shoot a little bit. Uh, he was not really a three-point shooter at all. Uh, he shot 40% from three this season on less than an attempt per night. So we're talking really low volume. But if you watch older NBA games, you'll see a long ball by John Long. And, like, he was shooting, like, a free throw line jumper. Or, like, just over, like, a 20-foot shot. But back then, those were long balls. And people loved going, long from long. It was just lame and, and kind of sad. But the corny guy in me understands it and embraces it. So uh, there we go. Notables. Rick Smith played all 82 games. That was good. Uh, Chuck Persons was 12th in... He was... Well, let's start with the positive. He was 18th in uh, two-point field goals made. He was 14th in minutes. He was 20th in attempts. He was 12th in total field goals made. He was also third in turnovers. He was 12th in field goals missed. Chuck Person was making shots. Chuck Person was missing shots. Chuck Person was playing a lot. Chuck Person was doing the most. It was his team at the time. We were just kind of... The rest of the Pacers were just living in it, right? Uh, Reggie Miller was ninth in, in that season in three-point percentage. I said at 40% from three. Uh, Chuck was 18th in points per game. Reggie Miller was 15th in effective field goal percentage. And true shooting percentage was 11th, so really efficient uh, season for Reggie Miller. And he was also 16th in offensive rating, Miller was. So uh, it was Miller time, but not quite yet as long as the Rifleman has something to say about it. They were a good tandem for a little bit, but I think it was clear or should have been clear at the time uh, what team or what leadership that should have been behind. <laughs> All right, so 
next episode, we are going to go into more of the middle of the pack teams. Uh, teams that did make the playoffs, you know, weren't quite contenders, but um, we're in the boat. But we do have one more team that just missed the bubble to talk about first, and that was the 38 and 44 Dallas Mavericks, who finished fourth in the NBA Midwest Division under coach John McLeod. Uh, they had a very stingy defense. Uh, defense rating didn't show it. Uh, they were 17th at 108.6 defensive rating. They were 15th offensive rating. Um, the interesting thing about this team is that you look up and down, and it was just underperforming, and I think uh, a massive trade due to toxicity, toxicity, toxic nature of the locker room uh, at the time concerning a certain Mark Aguirre for the Dallas Mavericks. At this point, Mark Aguirre had a career of being moody, clashing with coaches, really being this embattled star for the Mavericks. I would liken the relationship of um, a Mark Aguirre and the Mavericks to, let's say, DeMarcus Cousins with the Sacramento Kings back in the day. Um, I think Aguirre was just more contentious even when the team was winning and was successful. So I'd put him just a little bit worse as far as like a locker room cancer, so to speak, than I would a DeMarcus Cousins. But Aguirre was a talented player, but was just very, very hard uh, to get along with uh, for the team. Really just making players walk on eggshells, causing a lot of dissension, uh, even on the cusp of some very successful Dallas Mavericks teams in the 80s leading up to this point. They'd even pushed the Los Angeles Lakers to seven games in the Western Conference Finals the year before. So to kind of get to where they are now, um, it was pretty disappointing. But at this season, uh, it was it was time for Mark Wire and the Mavericks to just get a divorce, move on, finish things somewhere else. It was no longer going to work here. At the time, uh, Aguirre was averaging 21 points a night to go along with five rebounds, four assists. He was a very versatile player. He had a great post-up game. He was also a very good shooter who could stretch um, and see the floor from three. Even though percentage-wise he shot 30% from three, he was definitely able to knock down the long ball, and he was just hard to stop from scoring. Great moves. Uh, he can move the ball pretty well. Uh, for his career with the Mavericks, over eight seasons, 24 points a night to go along with five rebounds, three assists. Very, very talented player, but just so hard to get along with um, just fighting with coaches and teammates and everything that he just had to be moved. So he was traded to Detroit middle, midway through the season uh, for Adrian Dantley, who, you know, if you look at Adrian Dantley, low post monster, uh, especially being his size, which was 6'5", 6'6", definitely had so many moves down there, um, was known for massaging the basketball before shooting his free throws, um, but he was also someone who was a, a prickly personality and wasn't getting along with Detroit anymore, clashing with Isaiah Thomas and the powers that be, so they shipped him to Dallas, who at the time was very grateful that just Mark Aguirre was gone because they felt, okay, now we can breathe and play the way that we think we can play, but just sadly their defense didn't hold um, offensively, Dallas was never uh, in a lack for getting people who could put the basketball into the basket, but they just had some troubled personalities that also kind of limited them. So, Aguirre, we already talked about, uh, he was their leading scorer before he was shipped out to Detroit. Um, the person that got back in return, 33-year-old Adrian Danley, would then lead the Mavericks in scoring for his time there with 28 night to go along with five rebounds and two and a half assists, um, shooting 46% from three. Um, and again, Mark Aguirre did not have a great shooting 
year for the Mavericks uh, for those 44 games he played. 45% for the field, which isn't bad, but 29% from three on just over two attempts per night. So he was just shooting at that point. Kind of out of it, you could tell it was a move that made best um, for both parties uh, concerning uh, Dallas and Aguirre. And we'll talk about Aguirre more when we talk about Detroit in a couple episodes where we talk about how they end up making that change and how they end up playing their team that will factor in greatly in this 1989 season. But you did have Rolando Blackman, who was your, at the time, I want to say prototypical um, 80s, 90s shooting guard. You know, great game, uh, finishing at the rim, um, handling the ball some, coming off the screens and making shots. He would play most of his career with Dallas. Um, Out of his 13 seasons, 11 of them would be spent in Dallas, where he averaged 19 points, 3 rebounds, 3 assists. Pretty productive numbers. Um, Speaking of this season right now, this 89 season for the Mavericks, he would average 19 points a game, um, which would lead the Mavericks over a full season, not talking about partial seasons like we did for Aguirre and Dantley. 19 points, 3.5 rebounds, 3.5 assists a night. Uh at age 29, so really in the prime of his career here. You had Derek Harper, a longtime Mavericks point guard, uh, would also get some run for the Knicks as well. And then the Lakers, he was coming into his own, um, really finding out, um, not really finding out, but really coming into his solid point guard um, abilities with 17 points a night, 7 assists as well, shooting 47% from the field. He was a 3-point shooter, uh, 35% on just over 3 threes a night, so that was very solid. You had Roy Tarpley, another um, troubled soul on this Mavericks team, battled alcohol and drug issues, uh, unfortunately, um, throughout his career. But the late Tarpley did average 17 points in only 19 games. He, you know, between injuries and suspensions and such, he definitely did have a problem staying on the floor. Um, He started six games, played 31 minutes a night, 54% from the field, um, known for his goggles, great rebounder, good offensive game, nice mid-range game as well. Um, offensively very, very talented. It was just the stuff outside of the court that was issues for him. Uh, Sleepy Sam Perkins, uh, one of your first stretch fours. Big guy, part of the 1984 draft. Um, Played a very long and productive career in the NBA from 1984 through 2001 um, with the the Mavericks, with the Lakers, with the Supersonics, and then with the Pacers. Um, This season, he averaged 15 points a night. Eight rebounds and assists and a half a game. Shot 46% from the field, only 18% from three. Uh, like I said, he was a stretch four, but he really became one later. He could definitely shoot the three, but it was not his uh, part of his repertoire in 89. And you could tell by his shooting percentages. Uh, same with Detlef Schrempf, who only played 37 games uh, that season. Nine points, four rebounds, two assists. He would definitely come into his own later. Aside from that, you had longtime big man Herb Williams. You had uh, longtime point guard Brad Davis, who went from being undrafted to being a guy who spent all of his career with the Dallas Mavericks as a three-point shooter who was solid, um, a guy who led them in assists for many years. He was definitely in the twilight of his career here. Would only play just three more seasons with Dallas. Uh, he started, or he played 78 games, was largely a reserve at this point in time in his career, especially with the ascension of Derek Harper. Six points a night three assists as well steady veteran influence for Dallas Mavericks team that needed a lot of it through all of this ascension aside from that Bill Wellington who would later factor in as a uh you know one of the rotation of the Chicago Bulls in the 90s guys who just anonymously were there and then Terry Tyler uh who was kind of on the tail end of his career that had him play a lot with the uh 80s uh Pistons during their coming of age before their uh 
finals runs in the late 80s, early 90s. All right, notables. Mark McGuire before leaving, yes, in just 44 games, was 14th in usage at 27.4. The guy was hogging the ball. The guy was getting his shots. There was no stopping him there, except to trade him, which is what the Mavericks did. Derek Harper, uh, he was 14th in assists that season with 570. He was 7th in three-pointers made with 99, and he was 8th in three-pointers attempted with 278. So very solid play all around for him. He was also uh, 15th in steal percentage, uh, 20th in box, plus, minus, and uh, 17th in Vorp, which is value over replacement player. So really solid for him. Don't let it get twisted defensively. He was also a menace as well. He was 12th in the league with 172 steals. Um, you had two players who were top two in, or top 20 in minutes played. Uh, Sam Perkins was 20th in rebounds. Uh, another yeah, notable. Uh, Mark McGuire was 18th in field goals missed during his tenure with the Mavericks that season. And then when Adrian Dantley came over, he ended up being ninth in free throws made and eighth in free throws attempted. So he was getting himself to the line with that post-up game that he would use uh, for the remainder of his career, which at this point would only last four, three more seasons. So that was a thing there. All right, this, I think, has been our longest episode to date of NBA Today. Uh, we've been clocking over an hour and some change here. Uh, definitely make sure to rate, review, subscribe um, to NBA Today. We're going to do some more of these historical uh, breakdowns. We are not done with this season. We have to go into the teams now that were contenders, the ones we're gunning for that number one spot. We have a couple teams in the middle uh, for that season that we are going to get into very soon, um, including teams that I watched a few games uh, for that I was excited to see. Um, the Trailblazers, the Bullets, the Celtics, the Warriors, the Nuggets, the Rockets, and the 76ers. Those will be the next couple that we address, um, the next 10. Uh, and you have more of a mix of teams that did not exceed expectations, teams that you know have more stories to them outside of just being bad NBA teams for that season. All right, so um, that'll do it here for NBA Today. Thank you so much for uh, spending your time with me. Stay safe, wash your hands, practice that social distancing, y'all, and let's have a good one. All right, y'all. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.